morning, Deer Creek Church. How's everybody this morning? Happy fall, man. Beautiful fall weather that we've been having. And now we get to come into this dark room and listen to a sermon. <laughs> so we're going to jump back into the book of Romans. If you have a Bible, open up to the book of Romans. If you have questions of, okay, so where are we going here? So for four weeks, I preached on Romans. Then Dwayne's been preaching in Genesis. And now we're back in Romans. Just so you know, we're running kind of like parallel sermon series here that we hope supplement one another. So we're going Romans when I preach, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy when Dwayne preaches, and we hope that somehow you guys are all edified as a result. So pray for us in that. And if you have the book of Romans open, which if you don't know where that's at, it's the sixth book of the New Testament. We're going to be looking at Romans chapter 3, verses 19 through 31. And this one author, this paragraph, was referred to by one author as the chief point and the very central place of the whole Bible. This is the center of the Bible. If you understand this passage in Romans, then I'm convinced the entire Bible will be opened up to you as a result. And we've been calling this sermon series in Romans Basic Christianity. You've probably heard us refer to it as that. And that's because in Romans, Paul, who's the author of this letter, who's an early follower of Jesus... What Paul is doing is he is writing out a basic outline of what it is Christians believe and what it is Christians and Christianity is all about. So in that way, the book of Romans is like a Christian grammar. It is, it's an introduction to Christianity. You know, like a grammar teaches you new words, it teaches you new terms, this book teaches us new doctrines, new teachings, new beliefs that we're supposed to hold as followers of Jesus and be challenged with if we're not followers of Jesus. And some of you, you hear that word doctrine, you hear the word theology maybe, and you think that that's an academic affair. Remember who Paul's writing to. Paul's writing to a first century audience who has an education standard that's probably a lot lower than ours is today. So we're to embrace these truths, us as normal people, in order that we could follow God and love him with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, and all of our strength. That's Paul's intent here. So if you have your Bible, Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 19, you can follow along with me beginning there. If you don't have a Bible, it's going to be listed up on the screen as well. Let's read it together. Paul begins, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time 
so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith, that's the Jews, and the uncircumcised through faith, that's the Gentiles. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. This is the word of God. Let's pray and ask God to teach us this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And we need this. We need to be reminded of these truths. And God, we pray that now you would send forth your spirit to be among us, that we would learn from these truths, and that we would worship you in response to these truths. And we ask this all in Jesus' name, our Savior. Amen. All right. So I'm going to open with a story of a woman named Claudia. Claudia was a newspaper journalist. She worked for a very famous newspaper in Washington, D.C., a political newspaper. And Claudia was a relativist an avowed relativist. A relativist means that she does not believe that there is such thing as good and evil. In fact, she believes that the terms good and evil are just relative to where you grew up. So if you grew up in the United States, your understanding of good and evil is relative to where you live. Whereas if you grew up in Mexico, then your understanding of good and evil would be determined by where you live. Evil and good are relative. Claudia, out of a sense of a desire for something more, started attending a Washington, D.C. church. And as she did, she met with a Bible study leader whose name was Mark. And they were going back and forth on the nature of good, the nature of evil, whether God thought things were objectively wrong or whether evil was relative, and neither could really make headway into the other person's beliefs. But something happened with Claudia. She was going on a political assignment to Papua New Guinea. And as she went on this political assignment, just before she landed there, she heard the story of a priest who for 35 years, just before his retirement, was being arrested by authorities. And he was being arrested because it had been found out in his 35 years that he had abused children. Over 100 children had been abused by this priest. And Claudia just did not have the categories for this. She was so struck by the implications of what this priest had done. She was struck mostly by the broken relationships that would result as a part of this priest's abuse. Then she started thinking about just the psychological turmoil that these children would have for the rest of their lives. And she started thinking, how could this be? And as she returned back to the United States, she met with Mark again. And Mark said, Claudia, was what that priest did, was it wicked? And her response was, well, we know that child abusers are often victims of abuse themselves. And Mark's response was, Claudia, yes, we know that. The Bible even tells us that sin proceeds to the third and fourth generation, that sin is generational. It doesn't just affect us. It affects everybody around us. Claudia, was it wicked? She said, well, yes, some people view it that way. They, they definitely see it as wicked, but not so. Some other people don't see it that way. And Mark said, yes, we know people hide from the reality of the evil they cause, but Claudia, was it wicked? 
and Claudia going home. She was really disturbed by all of this stuff and all these emotions that she was feeling. And in the dark of night around 3 a.m., it dawned on her as she woke up in a cold sweat, this was wicked. And it was in that moment she realized if she had a category for wickedness and righteousness, then she might be wicked. And in a matter of a couple of weeks, she had actually become a Christian. This was a turning point in her life and this realization of who she really was before the God that created her. And I tell that story to kind of highlight the burden of Paul's argument this far forward in Romans. From chapter 1, verse 18, to Romans chapter 3, verse 20, Paul's been trying to highlight this fact that we, in fact, are wicked. And we've been calling it the bad news. Paul kind of summarizes this dilemma that we're in, this bad news. It's the very first line of his argument in Romans chapter 1, verse 18. He puts it this way, that we're all under God's wrath because of our unrighteousness. He says, quote, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. Paul adds on to this. The very next chapter, chapter 2, verse 5, he says, But because of your hard and impenitent hearts, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He continues. He's, he's snowballing. He's building his argument here. Verse 8, But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. And then Paul kind of brings this all to a conclusion in Romans chapter 3, verse 5. He asks this rhetorical question. He says, But if our unrighteousness serves to show God's righteousness, what shall we say then, that God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? So do you see what Paul's saying here? He's saying our unrighteousness merits God's wrath because God is Righteous. We have all broken God's perfect law and as a result stand condemned. That's Paul's argument. We are wicked and condemned before God. And it doesn't matter who you are. Paul's very clear to point this out. It doesn't matter who you are. You can be the most religious person in the world. We still stand condemned under God's law. You could be a Jew. You could be a Gentile, you could be a, quote, good person or a bad person. It's the same condemnation, it's the same verdict. We are all condemned. That's what Paul said at the very beginning of Romans chapter 3 in the verses we read. Now we know that whatever the law says, right, this is verse 19, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. See, if you were a Jew, you had the law, you had the Ten Commandments and you knew that you didn't follow them. If you didn't have the law, you weren't a Jew, you had your conscience, which God wrote on your heart to know good and evil. And we all know that even the standards we set, we don't live up to those, so we stand condemned by our own hearts. We're a lot like Elaine in Seinfeld. Do I have Seinfeld fans in here? Elaine's a terrible dancer, but she thinks she's a good dancer. And so she records herself dancing, and it looks like one bad dry heave in motion. 
And that's how we are before the law. It spotlights who we actually are before God. We are guilty and contemned, unrighteous sinners deserving of God's wrath. I find this fascinating, by the way, that this is known across cultures. So I heard of this, uh, I was watching a documentary, and it was a documentary on this tribe that had this ritual where they would have a, a big gate and a big uh, cage, and in that cage would be what's known as a scapegoat. And they would have all the people in the town lined up behind this gate. And they would open the gate, and this scapegoat would run through the city streets and ultimately into a jungle that was about a half mile away. All of the people who were lined up behind this goat, once the gate was opened, could run as fast as they could, and they tried to touch this goat. And if they could touch this goat, then all the guilt of all the wrong that they'd done during that year would be transferred to the goat and it would be carried away into the jungle where it would be atoned for. It would be taken away from them and they would be innocent before their God. And it's fascinating. People feel this guilt so strongly that they were willing to actually trample one another to death in order to touch this goat. And I'm trying to think of a, you know, modern equivalent, probably what we would do. I think of, you know, Black Friday when we open up Best Buy to go get an iPhone 12. We're willing to trample each other to death, right, to go and get that iPhone. Or it's like middle-aged women going into a Keith Urban concert, right? They'll trample each other to death trying to, we got to see Keith. But now back, sorry, back to the scapegoat. The scapegoat's what's important. See, the point is we all sense this guilt, don't we? We all sense that there's something wrong inside of us. Psychologist uh, Susan Whitbourne, she's a psychologist at Bra and brain science uh, at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Listen to what she says about guilt. She says, guilt is first and foremost an emotion. You may think of guilt as a good way to get someone to do something for you out of a sense of obedience or out of obligation, but it's more accurate to think of guilt as an internal state. She says, in the overall scheme of emotions, guilt is in the general category of negative feeling states. It's one of the, quote, sad emotions, which also includes agony, grief, and loneliness. And I agree with what Dr. Whitbourne says there on a psychological level. We feel guilty. But according to the Bible, the reason we feel guilty internally is because we are guilty externally. We are guilty before God, and as a result, we feel guilty inside. And that's what the whole Bible is trying to teach us through the law. D.A. Carson sums it up well. He's a biblical commentator and professor at Trinity uh, Seminary in Chicago. He says, our fundamental problem is alienation from the God who made us. And the whole of the Bible's plot line is designed to answer this question, how can we who are rebels by nature and by choice be reconciled to this God? How can we do it? Paul gives us the solution here. Paul says the way we are made right with this holy God is through justification. Justification, that rich theological term. And our translations can kind of obscure this, but take a look back at the passage that we just read. Okay, notice how many times Paul says the term righteousness of God. He says it nine times throughout there. 
And then he also says this word justified. But both of those words mean the same thing. They're the Greek word dikaiosune. And the point of it is this idea of justification. And what does justification mean then? Well, justification means two things. It's a legal term, right? So think the courtroom. It means this. First, as applied to Christianity, to be justified means that you are forgiven. That some way God is going to forgive us of our sins. And you probably remember this growing up in a youth group or Sunday school. Remember, to be justified means just as if I'd never sinned. You get it, right? Just as if I'd never sinned. And that's true, but it's only half the equation because there's another part of justification, and that part is righteousness. So it's not that God just has to take away our guilt and forgive us. He also has to give us something. He has to give us something positive so that we can stand before this holy God. It's a lot like a resume, right? You're hoping when you turn in a resume, not only that there's going to not be something on there that disqualifies you, you hope that there's stuff on there that qualifies you. Same thing with justification. Paul says that a justification has been made known apart from the law. So Paul's going to outline here for us four basic truths about justification. This is truth number one. Justification is apart from the law. We see that beginning in verse 21. But now, says Paul, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So what does this mean? Well, some people read this, and they read that but now, and how they understand that is, well, okay, God in the Old Testament was really just, and, you know, he was a punishing God, but now, in the New Testament, God's kind of this loving and gracious God. And that's how some people understand this but now, but that's not what Paul's saying here. In fact, I'm going to propose to you that God's justice and his grace run parallel from Old Testament into the New Testament. Because God is consistent throughout. So what Paul isn't saying is that God was uh, a God of law and now he's a God of grace. In fact, what he's saying is the Old Testament was a lot like a shadow. So you go outside, right? There's a tree and there's the sun and the shadows on the ground. And what does a shadow do? It outlines the reality of the tree. The shadow is just a reflection of the reality of the tree. In the Old Testament, God was showing in shadow form his true character that would be ultimately truly revealed in the New Testament. Does this make sense? All right, so for instance, put it this way. In the Old Testament, right, there was the temporal judgment of God on Israel. But that was just a shadow of the eternal judgment to come that we see in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, right, Israel was sent out of the land. Adam was kicked out of the land for his sin, as we learned a few weeks ago. That was just a shadow of the reality when God would one day banish unrepentant sinners from eternal fellowship with him forever in heaven. Same thing with God's grace, right? God in the Old Testament was gracious to the nation of Israel. But that was a shadow of the one day when he would come and call people from all tribes, all tongues, all nations to come to himself and find fellowship and grace in him. The cross is the perfect example of this, where God's righteousness, his justice, and his love and his grace are spotlighted 
So this is what Paul means. When Paul says, but now, he's not saying God was just and now he's gracious. What he's saying is, but now, finally, everything that the law was for has come to crystal clear fulfillment in Jesus. Okay? The law of God was not meant to say to us, you guys are so good. You guys are awesome. You guys are super righteous, and if you just do all these things that I'm telling you to do, you can be even more super righteous and awesome. That's not what the point of the law was. Notice what Paul says in verse 21. He says that the law and the prophets were bearing witness to a righteousness that had to be earned apart from our obedience to the law. So in other words, the law was a witness pointing out we are guilty. The law was a witness pointing out that God is righteous. The law was a witness pointing out that we needed an alien righteousness, a righteousness outside of ourselves. The law was a witness that pointed out we need a Savior and one to come and bear the punishment for our sins. That's what the law was. It was a witness. The law cannot justify us. Or as Matthew Henry wrote, he's a commentator on this passage, I love the way he puts it. He says, that which opens our wound cannot be the remedy. I love that. The law was meant to expose the wound of sin in us so that we might seek a remedy elsewhere. That which exposes a wound cannot be the remedy. The law opens our wounds so that we can seek a remedy elsewhere. And that flows into truth number two. If justification is not by works of the law then how are we going to be justified? Truth number two is this, that justification is received by faith. Write that down. Justification is received by faith, not through works of the, wall, works of the law. Verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. It's through belief in Jesus Christ that a person is justified, made right with God. Now, we often hear that term faith today, and we hear that not as Paul's audience would have heard it. Because we hear the word faith and we usually think of that as something kind of mystical or something that's kind of subjective, right? So we, we think of it this way. Over here in this category, we have things like science, and we have things like history and things like math. Those are fact. And then over here, we have things like religion and spirituality and maybe even philosophy, and those are matters of faith. These are objective and these ones are subjective, right? That's usually how we think about it. And so when we talk about faith, we talk about it as this blind leap, right? Well, I can't trust, you know, that this is real, but it feels good, so I'm going to jump over, and I'm going to just take this blind leap of faith. But here's the thing. That is not how the Bible defines faith. That definition of faith is a lot like this philosopher, his name was Voltaire. He said it this way. He said that faith consists in believing when it is beyond the power of reason to believe, so we believe certain things based on fact, and then once that gives out, then we'll jump and take a blind leap of faith. Or as Mark Twain said, faith is believing what you know ain't so. Okay? That's usually how we think of it. But in the Bible, faith is much richer. 
Faith in the Bible means we have to know, believe, and trust in the God of the Bible, and specifically in Jesus. So faith means knowledge. We have to know who Jesus is. And not only do we have to know who Jesus is, we have to believe in what he's done and believe that what he did was true. And then we have to trust in that and act in our lives based on that fact. Anybody here a flat earther, by the way? I don't think you would raise your hand, even if you were, right? I'm a flat earther, all right? No, I'm just kidding, I'm not. Okay, the earth is round, we're all agreed on that, okay? We all know that that's true based on, you know, physics or based on maybe pictures that we've seen of the earth from outer space. And we all believe that. We've all assented to that truth. And then we all act as if that is true. That's demonstrating trust in that truth, right? So if you get onto a boat and head west in the Pacific Ocean, you're acting on good faith and trust that as you go west in the Pacific Ocean, you're not going to fall off into outer space because the earth is round. And that's how we exercise faith as Christians. We know Jesus Christ, we believe what he's done is true, and then we act on the basis of that. So that is how faith is understood in the Bible. And that's why Paul says it's not just bare faith that justifies, right? It's not just that we have faith, because a lot of people have faith, it's just in the wrong thing. So Paul says, verse 22, that you have to have faith in Christ. Jesus is the object of faith that we have to believe in in order to be justified. See, a lot of people want to think that if I just have faith in anything, I'll be okay. But no, what Paul is saying, the object of your faith is what matters. And now, I used to play Oregon Trail growing up. You guys remember that game, Oregon Trail? And you would get to the Kansas River. Now, the premise of Oregon Trail, for those of you who don't know what it is, is you go for, you start off on the East Coast, and your, your uh, ultimate goal is to end up in Oregon. And it's like 18-something, and you're riding a wagon across, the, you know, the prairies and everything. And you always come up against the Kansas River. And the Kansas River, they say, is 630 feet across. It always says this, and then it, the depth of it differs, but it's like 10 feet, across, 10 feet deep. Now, you have two options when you meet the Kansas River. You can kind of uh, ford the river, means you just try and walk across it, or you can ferry across the river and pay out some money to somebody to cross the river. Now, think of this. You can have all the faith in the world that you can ford the river and just walk across it yourself with you and your oxen. But that is a foolish faith. Because I don't care what kind of oxen you have, it cannot get through 10 a 10 feet depth of rushing Kansas River. On the other hand, you could be very timid and not trust the ferry to get you across, but that would be a concrete, solid faith, and it would actually accomplish its goal, and you would get across the river. So what you have faith in is more important than the amount of your faith or the sincerity of your faith or the power of your faith. People think we need to just conjure up a lot of faith and, and really be bold in our faith, but that's not the point that Paul's making here. He's saying, no, what you have faith in is what matters, and it doesn't matter the amount. Remember, Jesus said that faith can be the size of a mustard seed, and if it is the size of a mustard seed, you can move mountains. Anybody moved a mountain recently? How about a Ford Fiesta? Anybody moved a Ford Fiesta recently? 
Toaster? Breadcrumb. See, it's not the amount of faith that we have. Jesus' point is you don't even have the amount of faith of a mustard seed. But if you have faith in me, it doesn't matter how much faith you have, as long as it is rooted in me, no matter how timid it is, no matter what you're going through, God will see you through it, and he will bring you ultimately into heavenly glory. So the object of what we place our faith in is what matters. Justification is received by faith alone, in Jesus alone. And now I know there are many people who hear that. Maybe you're here this morning and you're saying, okay, I understand what you're saying, but I just cannot believe in that. Because after all, I know plenty of sincere people, people that I love, people that I know, and they're good and decent people. They're religious people. And are you saying that they have no hope of a right relationship of God just because they don't believe in Jesus? Isn't that the definition of arrogance? And if you feel that way, you're not alone. Tim Keller, he's a pastor in New York City. He said that the biggest problem that people have today when considering Christianity, he says, is summed up in one word, and that word is exclusivity. The idea that you have to believe in Jesus as the only way to be right with God. That's the biggest stumbling block of people today. Because it does, it seems arrogant, doesn't it? But if you're here this morning and you're wrestling with that, I want to propose you two things. There's two faulty ways in thinking that way. The first is this, is that justification through faith in Jesus is not arrogant. It's actually exceedingly humble. Justification by faith in Jesus is not arrogant. It's actually exceedingly humble. Let me put it in the words of Randy Newman. Randy Newman uh, wrote a book called Questioning Evangelism, where he basically interacts with people with questions and answers about what it is that they believe. And the first one of the questions that he asks people is, do you think everyone is going to heaven? Even Osama bin Laden is the example that he gives. And he says that 99% of people say no. So he follows it up with another question. He says, then why, why do you think that you're likely to go to heaven? And 99% of people answered that they think they're generally a good person. And it's after that that the hard questions really come. Because then Randy Newman follows with this. So he says, so do you think that you're morally better than the people who are going to hell? And 99% of people say, hmm, I guess so. See, friends, he's quick to point out that believing you're justified by your own goodness, that is arrogance. But to believe that you're justified based on the work of Jesus alone, that is exceedingly humble because it comes with the acknowledgement, I can't do it by myself. So that's the first problem with this way of thinking. But the second problem is that it confuses religion and Christianity. See, all religions say the same thing. They say, you accumulate a good record before God. You do the right things, and on the basis of that, God approves of you. But in Christianity, the relationship is exactly the opposite. The relationship is Jesus accumulates a good record in your place, and you receive it by faith in him. Do you see the fundamental difference? See, we can't confuse Christianity with religion, and we can't make Christianity to be about boasting in ourselves and our good works. It should actually make us exceedingly humble. And that's a challenge to Christian and non-Christian alike. 
So we can't accumulate a good record before God. And that's exactly the next point that Paul moves into. Right? He even says explicitly, For there is no distinction. This is verse 22. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all fall short, but we all like to make distinctions, don't we? Right? We in our flesh, we... As we are, we love to make a division between those people and us. We're the good people over here. Those are the bad people over there. How many people have walked into Walmart here and said, I am so much better than everybody in here? <laughs> Come on, I know you said it. And then the irony hits you. I'm shopping in Walmart. This is the reality of human nature. We all want to draw distinctions where God doesn't draw distinctions. We all fall short of the glory of God. I was thinking of this story that I heard some time ago. It was the story of two brothers. They were both in the mafia. One of the brothers died, and the living brother went and talked to the village priest. And he goes to the village priest and says, you have to do the funeral of my brother. I can't find anybody else to do it. I've asked every other church on the corner. You're the last person I wanted to ask, but I'm going to ask you, will you please have mercy on me? Please do this funeral for my brother. And finally, the priest reluctantly is like, okay, okay, I'll do it. I'll do it. Just, uh, you know, whatever, just show up on the day and I'll prepare something. Well, the brother says, well, I have one caveat. You have to call my brother a saint. And he's thinking, <laughs> no promises, okay? I'll try, but there's not much saintly in your brother, so I'll try, though. Just, just show up on the day. I'll, I'll try and make it work. So everybody arrives. The day's, you know, upon him, about to do the funeral. The priest gets up. He's about to deliver this sermon, and he says, this man lying before you in this casket was a murderer. He was a liar. He was a villain, he was one of the worst people I ever knew, but compared to his brother, he's a saint. <sighs> Who are we compared to somebody else? See, we may think ourselves righteous compared to others, but friends, compared to the glory of God, we fall far short. There is nothing we can do to have a right standing with God. And that flows into truth number three that Paul brings out in this passage. Truth number three is that justification is a gift of grace. Justification is a gift of pure and free grace. Verse 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. The implications of this are staggering, by the way. They're staggering. Grace means unmerited favor. If we all fall short, therefore, God must give us something that nobody deserves. Nobody. Nothing we do can merit God to be gracious to us. That means God is not gracious to us because of the color of our skin. That means God is not gracious to us or has a special category for people who vote a particular way. God is not gracious or gives merit to anybody because of their social status, whether good or low. There's no preferential option here. And here's the kicker, right? God is not gracious to us because we have faith. I'm going to say that again. God is not gracious to us because we have faith. See, that's what we usually think. We usually think God's going to be gracious, but if I have faith, then I receive that grace. If I have faith, then God's going to be gracious to me. But Paul says it's the exact opposite. 
the reason that we have faith is because God's gracious to us. In fact, the very faith that you have in Jesus right now is only by the free gift of God that he's worked inside of you and given you the strength to hold on to his son, Jesus Christ. And Paul doesn't make that explicit in this passage here, but he does in another letter. He writes this to a church in Ephesus, and he makes it clear. He says these words, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. Even the faith we have is the grace of God. It is the gift of God. So God is gracious to us and we have faith. And this is earth shattering once you realize it. Philip Yancey, who's an author, wrote a book, What's So Amazing About Grace. He said once he first realized this, it was the most freeing thing that he'd ever experienced. He put it this way. He says, grace means there is nothing I can do to make God love me more. And there is nothing I can do which will make God love me less. Nothing. Grace means that I, even I who deserve the opposite, am given a place at the table of God's family. Friends, we contribute nothing to our justification, nothing whatsoever. It's a free gift of God. Now, this is going to sound like a contradiction because I'm going to say, you actually do contribute something to your justification. And you know what that is? The sin that made it necessary. The only thing that you contribute to your salvation, that I contribute to my salvation, is the sin that made it necessary for God to send his son and die in our place. That's why the famous hymn says, Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. We all come empty-handed, no merit, no work, no good deed that we can present to God, that he'll say, I approve of you. It's all a gift of God's grace. And so the question really does become, well, how can God do that, right? Because go back to the courtroom drama. In this courtroom, on what grounds is God going to justify guilty people? Because that actually sounds pretty unrighteous of God. If God is going to say to somebody who's before him, guilty, if he's going to say to that person, oh yeah, you're fine, you're justified, you can go out of here. No, usually it has to have a grounding. Why is God declaring guilty people justified? Like when you watch a courtroom drama, right? They say, that person is innocent on the grounds that they were not at the scene of the crime when it happened. What Paul says here is that we are justified on the grounds of Jesus' redemption and sacrifice on the cross. Paul says that in verse 23. He says, to wrap up this brilliant section, he says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. That word redemption is a really rich word. What it means is God is ransoming people back to himself. To pay a ransom means you pay a price in order to bring a prisoner or a slave back into your company, to free them from their condemnation. And the way that God did that, the payment that he made, was his own son. 
and the spilling of his blood to satisfy his wrath, the punishment that we deserve. That's what Paul means by this word propitiation. And the NIV, if you have that in front of you, it, it, it translates it a sacrifice of atonement. Or maybe you have the RSV, it translates it as expiation. But the reason that we don't use this word propitiation, this straightforward word, is because we actually don't really like what that means. What that means is that God is wrathful and angry towards sin. And that on the cross, Jesus, in shedding his own blood, bore and absorbed the wrath and punishment of God in himself so that God's holy and righteous wrath would be satisfied. Jesus turns away the wrath of God from us, bearing our condemnation on the cross so that we might have fellowship with God. John Stott put it this way, when we look at these verses, we are faced with Christian propitiation in which God's own love sent his own son to satisfy his own holy wrath against sin so that we might be justified in God's holy sight. And when you tie all of these truths about justification together, that we are justified by grace, apart from our obedience to the law, through faith in Jesus and his redemptive work on the cross to satisfy God's divine wrath and justice. When we tie all these together, it goes into this final truth that justification is for God's glory. Justification is for God's glory. You know, why, think about it this way, why would God do this? Why would God send forth his only son to bear his wrath in our place? One reason is love. Because God so loved the world, he gave his only son. But Paul doesn't make note of that here, although that's true. He puts it in these terms. He says, this justification, verse 25, this was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that, we, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. You see what he's saying? God wanted to bring worship and glory and honor to himself. And for that reason, he sent his son Jesus to be a propitiation for our sins so that we, who were rebels and turned away from God, might turn back to him and worship him for who he really is. So that we would look at the cross and we would say, God is just. Yeah, he passed over former sins in the past in the Old Testament, right? They would prevent sac present sacrifices, and God would look over those sins. But now on the cross, he punished them in full, so that when Jesus on the cross could say, it is finished, the wrath of God is satisfied. But it's not just to demonstrate God is righteous and, and just, it's also to prove that he is a justifier, that he is a God 
who is willing to justify and make right rebels against his will and turn them back to restore them to relationship with himself. God is simultaneously the just and the justifier. And so Paul wraps this all up, verse 27. He says, then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. When we get to heaven, if you have faith in Jesus, it is not because you had faith in Jesus. When we get to heaven, it is not because you did good works. We will all stand before God's glory worshiping him and saying, I am here because of God. Because he so loved the world and so wanted to glorify himself that he was willing to propitiate his own holy wrath so that we could stand in his presence. For his own glory, God sent his own son to justify us by grace through his son that we receive by faith. Then verse 28, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And he cap finishes this off. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. See, what Paul is saying there is that the law was never meant to justify us. When we read a command in Scripture that should expose our wound, it was always meant to drive us to the justification in the Son of God on the cross so that God might receive glory. Johann Sebastian Bach, the great composer, in all of his compositions, in all of his musical writings, on the very bottom of every single page that he ever wrote, he wrote three letters, S-G-D. And it stood for the Latin, soli deo gloria, which means glory to God alone. Every piece of music that Bach wanted to write, he wanted everyone to know, it is by the grace and the glory and the goodness and the justice of God that I stand able to do this. Because he knows on the cross, God, to glorify himself, was willing to ransom and redeem his soul for eternal fellowship with God. Soli Deo Gloria. God alone be the glory through a justification by grace through faith in Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we stand before you and we confess we have no glory of our own, no work good enough to come before you, no status good enough to stand in your presence. And God, we confess with our mouths and we declare with our lips that our only hope is in your Son, Jesus Christ. I pray for anyone who does not have faith this morning that you, by your grace, would work faith in them. God, I pray for those of us who do have faith that you would humble us to realize that it is not even the basis of our faith, but the basis of your Son, Jesus Christ, that we stand before you and can worship you now. And would you set our hearts ablaze now as we do worship you, that we would give you the glory, the honor, the power, and the majesty that you deserve. Glory to you alone, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.